You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom. To go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ. To be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You were not made to make excuses. time for you to take extreme ownership for your life, for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. What's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Nathan Crankfield, the host and founder of the Seeking Excellence Podcast. And my goodness, is it good to be with you today. I am so excited. I haven't shared this. I meant to kind of like preview it a little bit. Maybe I had shared it on a previous episode. I don't know what I say. You know, when you talk this much, it's like, I, I it's hard to remember how much things you say, you know, how much things you say. There, that made a lot of sense. Um, you think you'd get better at a certain point, uh, you know, with speaking and things like that, being able to express yourself. And I feel as though potentially I'm getting worse, you know, so I've got that going for me, which is great. But, you know, one thing I wanted to tell you guys about was I got accepted to this wonderful program called the Leadership Program of the Rockies. And if you are somebody that's local to Denver, I highly, highly recommend looking it up. I will attach the link to their website and everything. It is an awesome program. My father-in-law went through the program uh, back in the 90s. And so I think he was one of the first classes. And it's a nonpartisan 501c3 group. And what they do is basically take you on this 10-month course where the second Friday of every month you meet as a class of about 70 people and they have different speakers. Some speakers fly in from like places like Hillsdale College. Um, then you have a lot of former professors and things like that that live here, current professors, former professors. Um, the, the chairman of the board is, um, honorable Bob Schaefer, former house representatives from Colorado and also Catholic. I just found out recently that he's also Catholic and he's awesome. So it's not a Catholic organization, which is why, uh, or which is part of the reason why I find it super interesting. So I just had my first class exactly a week ago from today. So I'm recording this on August, uh, August, October 21st. And so I wanted to try to do it while things are still fresh. So last weekend, I mean, I had a hell of a weekend, dude. I went from LPR, my first day at LPR, straight into a retreat for adult children of divorce. And so I had just struggled this whole week because I feel like so mentally, not overwhelmed, but just like full. And I just want to get it out. I want to share it. And I've dumped a lot on Emily already, but have tried to kind of give it to her in waves because I know it's a lot. I have tons of thoughts as you guys know. And so I'm excited to talk about some of this stuff. So the breakdown of the class is basically defending the constitution and defending capitalism are kind of the two main parts. And so from my understanding, each class 
has sections on both. And so this past week, we went through uh, some of the, like, America's founding in the early parts of the Declaration of Independence. We did short stuff on capitalism, um, and then we really hit American slavery and the problem of American slavery. slavery. Jeez, I need to do, like, the (laughs) tip of the tongue, the teeth, the lips. The tip of the tongue, the teeth, the lips. Isn't that a, I think that's a Dwight Schrute thing. Um, But I, I, we went through American slavery and the problem of American slavery, especially in regards to the Declaration of Independence um, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was just an amazing day. As you can imagine, I just absolutely loved it. Had certain issues, things I disagreed with, but man, just the, it made me feel like I should go get a doctorate in something because I just love being in a classroom setting and learning about this stuff. I, I almost minored in history in college, but you know, I am... As you can, as you probably know, uh, greatly favor, I greatly favor America. Okay. So (laughs) hence the U.S. sweatshirt I'm currently wearing right now. I greatly favor America. So I really only care about American history and world history insofar as it contributes to either the Catholic faith or American history. (laughs) That's really all I care about. So I don't know how these people, I remember talking to somebody recently Oh yeah, it was this guy in this men's group I'm in, and he's getting his like PhD in hist in 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 uh, military history, but it's not like exclusively American history. And so he's learning about like wars of like ancient Greece and Egypt, and I'm like, I couldn't care less about those things. Um, but big fan of American military history. I don't know if you know this, but I was in the American military, which uh, feels like a lifetime ago. But I want to start today off, I've debated a few times how I wanted to start this thing. And I think I want to just kind of set the frame, because what I want to talk about today, so I kind of want to set the stage with a a short clip from Dinesh D'Souza. And Dinesh is great. Um, He's a big YAF speaker, Young Americans Foundation. I have, I did get once to get the opportunity to uh, speak and give my own YAF speech on BLM, which I've always said I was going to record and release as a podcast. And I just haven't done it yet. I don't know why, but I'm going to do it. I promise. Um, But uh, I kind of want to start, just kind of set the stage because what I really want to talk about today is this idea of American exceptionalism and how much that's just deteriorated and how much we undervalue and underappreciate what happened in the 1700s especially in 1776. After class, I kind of took on my own to order some extra books and do some additional reading. And I started reading, uh, I got this huge, like basically a textbook here of uh, Thomas Paine collection. And so it's got Common Sense, The American Crisis, Rights of Man, The Age of Reason. And so I started reading Common Sense and man, it was just like, I'm just like the balls that this guy had to say the things that he said, to roast the king of England the way he roasted him. It's unreal. And just the way he like roasts his fellow Americans too, who were like soft and didn't want to break apart from the UK. It was really incredible. And so, as I said, I want to start with this uh, little piece from Dinesh D'Souza. And then I think I'm going to read some of the Gettysburg Address. And we're going to get into some of that. And I just want to kind of lay the groundwork there to talk about that because Abraham Lincoln in my mind is the greatest president of all time. And he really sets the stage for what I want to 
kind of try to go into with the Declaration of Independence by, written by Thomas Jefferson and, you know, Thomas Paine and all this kind of stuff. So let's first take a listen to Dinesh, who is, uh, as you may know, a, an immigrant to the U.S. Um, and just has some awesome perspective for us here. Between the immigrant point of view and the native point of view is the native point of view is utopian, which is to say it lives in unreality. Being an immigrant exposes you to some other way of life. And the immigrant coming to America is always comparing America to some other existing country. The immigrant, in other words, is using a comparative or historical standard. Uh, Ayers is comparing America, I would say, to the Garden of Eden. In other words, he's comparing, he's using a utopian standard, and obviously by that utopian standard, America falls short. So one reason for the difference between the immigrant point of view and the native point of view is the native point of view is utopian, which is to say it lives in unreality. Now, as I think about my own life, uh, I came to the United States with $500 in my pocket. I came to America not knowing what to expect. Uh, and I discovered in America this bizarre thing, the American dream. And the American dream is not just the idea of economic success. That's often what it is misinterpreted to be. I have a friend in Bombay, India, who's always telling me he's been trying to come to America. He goes, Dinesh, I really want to move to a country where the poor people are fat. And, and, and that, that, that's the materialistic, that's the materialistic view of American success. But for me, I grew up in a middle-class family, uh, and although my life is materially better in America, that difference is not radical. My life has actually changed more in other ways. The most important thing that America has given me is the opportunity to be the architect of my own destiny, to be in the driver's seat of my own life. This is a country in which your major decisions, uh, where to live, whom to love, whom to marry, what to believe, what to become, those are decisions that you, the individual, make for yourself. Now, this opportunity, this social mobility, in which people start at the bottom and make their way up the ladder, this is part of what makes America different. And the proof of it is the immigrants themselves. Because if America were to take down its borders, half the world would come here. Now, the immigrant is a very reliable testifier to American exceptionalism. In sociology classes in this university, you might be told until the cows come home that all cultures are equal. But every immigrant knows that that's a lie. Because the immigrant is voting with his feet in the most decisive way possible against his own culture and in favor of another culture. And why would he or she do that if the other culture wasn't on the balance better, better? So the immigrant people say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Actually immigration is because the immigrant is in a sense casting a ballot for the United States. Now that my friends is some powerful stuff. I mean, there's so much to get into there. Can we can we start first with the? Um, my friend said he wants to come to a country where the poor people are fat. Think about how powerful that is. I think 
one of the one of the issues, and this is something that he gets into right there, is immigrants compare the United States of America to another country, right? The country that they came from, their border countries, the countries that they've been to. Whereas a lot of times you have Americans who compare America to the Garden of Eden, to this, to heaven, right? To this perfect place, to this land that does not exist on earth, except for in the mind of socialists and progressives. And that's what I feel like gets so often lost. And that's what I've been yearning for and have have logically come to myself. And I've talked about it on the podcast before because of just my own travels, right? So I've been blessed to go on different mission trips in my life. I've gotten to go to the Dominican Republic. I've gotten to go to Nicaragua. I went to the DR three times, went to Nicaragua once. And then I also was deployed to Afghanistan in 2017. And so I've had the opportunity that many have not um, to not just witness poverty here in the U.S., because I've also done domestic mission trips to places like Baltimore and Philly. Um, I've seen poverty in New York City. I've seen rural poverty in uh, in Georgia, in Kentucky, and, um, and then inner city poverty where I grew up in Harrisburg as well. Not only have I had the chance to see American poverty, but I've also had the opportunity to see poverty on a whole nother scale in other countries. And so that to me is a huge uh, sign of why I know that uh, poverty in other countries is just, it's almost incomparable to the poverty that we have here in the U.S. And that's why you hear him talk about, you know, in a half-joking way, his friend wanting to come to a country where the uh, poor people are fat. Because people want to come to a country where you can see that poor people in the U.S. have iPhones. They have clothes. They have homes, right? And, and when you go to some of these other places, I remember, I just remember being out on a mission in Afghanistan and seeing this kid walk this emaciated cow up the hill. And I was like, man, if a kid in the, in the U.S. in the inner city or, or no, 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 scratch that. If a kid in, in, if this kid who's walking the emaciated cow up the hill could see a kid, uh, a poor kid in the Dominican Republic, he'd probably be jealous of him. And I thought that if that kid, that poor kid in the Dominican Republic could see a poor kid in Philly or Baltimore, he'd probably be jealous of him. And when you start to kind of conceptualize that and understand that, it doesn't mean that we can't improve or that we can't grow or that we can't uh, build upon what we have. But it does mean that um, we should be grateful for what we have. And not only that, but what the immigrant can teach us and what uh, Dinesh is pointing out there and what this class has really kind of not not reiterated to me, I already knew this, but really emphasizes is that that is not the case everywhere in the world. And it's not the case for the majority of human history. What 1776 and the founding of the United States of America, the Declaration of Independence, what that marks in world history is is not meant to think of uh, and and be something that we think is like straight God-ordained or or that America is God's chosen people, but it does mark a turning point in a broken humanity and in a broken world where things really shifted and things became different. And that's what I feel like you really heard Dinesh say there towards the end, where he said, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family in India. I didn't grow up dirt poor. 
And so even though there's a lot of people and a lot of immigrant stories, millions of immigrant stories of people coming here with little to no money and raising themselves up through hard work and seizing opportunity to the middle class or the upper middle class or the upper class even. But he says what you can do in America is that you can write your own story. You have this ability to control your destiny in a major way. And, and what we don't realize is that for the massive majority of, of world history, 99% of people lived in the bottom lower class. And, and, and lower class, understanding that we're talking about like surviving on mush, eating one meal a day, right? It's like you don't understand that that that's not like that the the reality of what we have now of people who live poor people who live in the projects of the United States of America have indoor plumbing most of them have air conditioning and heat most of them own cars most of them own smartphones and have access to the internet in their house most of them have televisions and this is something that you hear uh, expressed even even in church sometimes right i just recently listened to father mike schmitz kind of go on about this where he was like, and I always think this is funny, like this is such a common icebreaker question. And he was kind of talking about, would you want to switch places? Would you want to be upper class in 1930, 1940, 1920, right? Or I think he said 1920. I think he used a century. Would you want to be upper class in 1922 or middle class or lower class in 2022? And that's a, bro, that's a century in the same country. Don't even think about the fact that you you could go back 500 years, 400 years, and we just think about what life was like back then. He's like, yeah, you can maybe go back an hour or, or a century and be upper class. He's like, the food you eat would be terrible because you wouldn't have the seasonings and the taste and the things that we have now, or the, nor the ability to cook it, but you would have people that would cook it for you. So that's not something to be totally neglected. Cleaning. He's like, it's somewhat similar, right? Like the loaves of cleanliness were much lower back then. Um, you might have heat in your house uh, via like um, some like old fashioned heating systems or at least fireplaces, but you're definitely not going to have air conditioning. Um, you might have a car, but it's going to be super slow and need a lot of maintenance. Um, and you're basically riding outside while you're in it because it's not going to have heat or air conditioning. Um, think, I mean, just think about all these things that, that, that were different back then. Uh, you you might be able to fly, but you're going to risk your death basically to do it. You can't order any food, right? There's no like, there's restaurants and things like that, but you're not like ordering DoorDash or delivery or things. Uh, if your family lived far away, it was really difficult to get to them and took a very long time. Uh, if you think paternity leave and maternity leave is bad now, you should have seen it back then. And so he just kind of goes on and comparing this to all this. And that's what we have to understand. And that's what's been so beautifully brought to life for me in my life the last few weeks is understanding that like monarchy was the way. It was the way of life in all of the Western world and really tyranny. Monarchy at best, tyranny at worst. It was what people had for all time, for all time. Like that was, that was like what existed outside of the Garden of Eden, right? And I think that I kind of want to start with uh, Common Sense by Thomas Paine because he does a great job of kind of expressing that. 
And this is something that was really cool to hear him say, because this was a philosophical understanding of the world that I kind of came to on my own and maybe was taught earlier. Like it wasn't an original idea, but just kind of thinking through these issues, especially the issues of rights, this really started to come up for me. And so as I was thinking about the issues of rights, and and especially what a lot of people refer to today as basic human rights. So where do we hear that most often? We hear that most often say said in um when it comes to abortion, right? When it comes to healthcare, these things are basic human rights, is what we are told. And so for something to be a basic human right, one you have to kind of first consider what is a right? What are your rights? The Declaration of Independence has something to say about this, and we're gonna get into that. But to me, and what I think Thomas Paine kind of comes back to is he's like, he, he's talking about not rights, but in, in the effort to understand the government. But I think in the purpose and, um, and role of government is how he kind of addresses it. But I kind of got to this place of t- thinking about reflecting on rights. A, 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 for something to be a true basic human right, it has to exist everywhere and always, no matter what. And so that means it would exist from the very beginning of human time. So as soon as we're out of the Garden of Eden, even in the Garden of Eden, honestly, but even once we're out, once sin has has fallen into the world, like what were our basic, like what is the human rights back then? And that's, these are the things that um, Thomas Jefferson calls life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we create the Bill of Rights, right? And the Constitution, where you get into more things like the uh, right to, um, free speech, right to bear arms, right to uh, assemble, right to uh, free freedom of religion. So what Thomas Paine does so well is he's going to take us back to, like I said, some of this, you know, like if if you kind of put three people out there in the world, you told them, hey, go figure it out, you know, this whole living thing. He kind of talks about some of this stuff, right? Um, he says, society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, in its worst state, an intolerable one. For when we suffer or are exposed to the same miseries by a government, which we might expect in a country without government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer. So what does that mean? I think a great example of that is Portland, Oregon, right? So not to pick on Portland, but to pick on Portland, they're basically like the new California, right? Portland makes California seem like it's still America, which is basically impossible to imagine. But they do a great job of it. You, th- you can see these videos, and this doesn't just happen in Portland. You see it in New York. You see it in California for sure. Uh, you see it in Washington. Um, where you see these stores, right? Convenience stores just getting ransacked. Corner stores and um, pharmacies and things like that. CVSs, right? Right Aids just getting ransacked. People with coordinated attacks that just go in and just steal as much as they possibly can. You see this with looting and all this stuff. And these things that aren't punishable, where you as a business owner can't even stop people from stealing the things that you sell. That is exactly what he's talking about, I think, or kind of uh, not even just predicting, because obviously this happened back then too in its own way. But it's like you pay the government that makes the laws that you yourself cannot prosecute or prevent somebody from stealing from you. That's what you would expect in a country without government. Now, going down a little bit further, he talks about kind of the the made-up 
situation that I kind of talked about, right? In a state of natural liberty, Thomas Paine says, society will be their first thought. So the first thought of man, right? Quoting him here, a thousand motives will excite him there too. The strength of one man is so unequal to his wants and his mind so unfitted for perpetual solitude that he is soon obliged to seek assistance and relief of another who in his turn requires the same. And so it's, he goes on to say four or five united would be able to raise a tolerable dwelling in the midst of a wilderness, but one man might labor out of a common period of life without accomplishing anything. And so you think about that. So that's like basic, basic stuff, right? So if you, if you just plop some people down, right. And, and you said, Hey, figure it out. They would soon come together and be like, wow, together we can build stuff. Right. And you can build a certain amount of things on your own, but nobody builds a house by themselves. Right. There's just certain parts where you need assistance, where you need help from other people. And not only that, but Thomas Paine is wise enough to acknowledge the communal needs of a human being, right? The societal needs. Um, not to overuse that word society, but he talks about the 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 need for companionship, right? The need for friendship, the need for conversation, right? Or else people go crazy. And so then he goes on to talk about um, the rise of government, right? So he goes on to say, as more people come about, he says, but as the colony increases, the public concerns will increase likewise. And the distance at which the members may be separated will render it too inconvenient, will render it too inconvenient for all of them to meet on every occasion as at first, when their number was small, their habitations near, and the public concernings concerns few and trifling. And so I love that. So he talks about as, as things get bigger, as society grows, you're going to have more public concerns, more public issues. People are going to be more separated, right? As you kind of take your own land and, and you separate out. And we're, when there's 10 of you, you might be able to convene together all the time to discuss the group issues, discuss the group issues. Now that there's a thousand of you or a hundred of you or 500 of you, it's a lot harder to get everybody together and discuss these things, right? And so he says, if the, this is a quote, if the colony continue increasing, it will become necessary to augment the number of the representatives and that the interests of every party or every part of the colony may be attended to, it will be found best to divide the whole into convenient parts, each part sending its proper number. And so this, you can think of like the house representatives dividing into states, counties, right? Like you start to divide groups up by geographic location, they're going to have similar interests, similar wants. And he's like, you elect individuals to kind of represent you. Quoting Thomas Paine here again, he says, here is the origin and rise of government, namely a mode rendered necessary by the inability of moral virtue to govern the world. Here too is the design and end of government, namely freedom and security. And so I think that's so important to understand. Freedom and security come about as the rise of government. Now, this is why I often say that it's a radically different worldview to stop and say that, or, or to, to transfer into what we have today from where he says, you know, the, the freedom and security is the purpose of government and it's a necessary evil, right? Recognizing, and you have to recognize within that, that the rights of man come from God, come from a creator which we'll get into here more in a second, because that's clearly stated in the Declaration of Independence. But you have to understand, it's just, we've progressed so far, and atheism has come about and become so strong, 
that people now believe that government is what gives us our rights. So this is, this is why this, this class has been so beautiful for me so far, is you start to understand, okay, it's not just that we disagree on what the human rights, what basic human rights are, which is a pretty fundamental and deep disagreement as it is, right? Like that's not something little to see differently. Because like we, we get into, I, I talk about this a lot with evangelization. And if you've listened to this for more than 30 days, you've heard me talk about, I say that in evangelization, there's, there's kind of like these core questions that people actually have and we actually need to answer. And then there's all this fringe stuff like, um, was Mary a perpetual virgin? Not that that's not important, but I do think it's, it's somewhat fringe compared to the actual like root questions. Uh, the seven extra books in the Catholic Bible, um, all these other things, right. That, that kind of come about the, the, the sacrament of confession, right. Priests not being able to get married. These questions that you often debate, you shouldn't call anybody father, right. Protestants will often bring these kind of objections up, but the, the questions kind of come down to, does God exist? Is Jesus the son of God? Did he rise from the dead? And did he start the Catholic church? And if he founded the Catholic church and, and therefore the church has authority, then that answers all the other questions because whatever the church says goes. So that's the true question. When somebody asks, does Mary have perpetual virginity? The question is, does the Catholic church have authority to make statements like that, to, to have revelation coming from tradition, not just from scripture? Right. And, and that's where I feel like this kind of gets to when people will say abortion is healthcare or transgender surgeries, gender affirming care is healthcare. Right. It's like, I don't even want to debate you on whether or not abortion is healthcare in regards to should tax, should taxpayers be paying for abortion? They're saying the argument is that taxpayers should be paying for abortion because abortion is healthcare and healthcare is a basic human right. So I want to go back to that first because before we even discuss taxpayers paying for abortion, I want to know why you think taxpayers should be paying for anybody's healthcare. Because you think that taxpayer, like taxpayers should be funding all of this stuff. That's where we get to this, this fundamental difference of human rights. And do human rights come from God or do human rights come from government? And that's why you have Marxism. And if you've ever read any Karl Marx or the Communist Manifesto, or you've studied Karl Marx before, and you've studied social, socialism and communism, you know that they require atheism. One of their great, the greatest enemies of, of communism and socialism always is Christianity. It's a church, right? It's religion in any kind because it, it tells you that something could potentially be above the government. And if something could be above the government, then, then you don't look to the state as your God, which is a problem. It's not just for fun because he thinks it's funny that Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un um, in North Korea has his people thinking that he's God, that he's this divine being. That's not just like a, a, a joke that he plays, right? That's funny to him. He actually needs people to believe that because that's how he can keep them in line the way that he does. Everything, that, everything they have comes from him, not from their own work, not from their own production, but it has to flow from him and from the state, right? From the government. And so these are the fundamental differences because someone like Thomas Paine can look and say, okay, human society, we need each other. We have a creator. That creator gives us each other. That creator gives us the things we need to provide for ourselves through the work that we put forth. And if we work together, we can create a lot more. Um, and and you, you, from this philosophy, understand that uh, 
God exists. There's a creator that exists. And that because of that, um, humans start to have uh, basic human rights. And so let's, let's take a look now at the, uh, the good old Declaration of Independence. I think it's really important to read just the first couple of paragraphs of this. This is obviously written by Thomas Jefferson, edited by Ben Franklin and a few others. He says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So it's, it's awesome, right? And so what he kind of talked about in this class, and this is where I'm going to come up on my first kind of disagreement and where I think Catholics kind of see things a little bit differently, is Thomas Jefferson, and what I do agree with, is Thomas Jefferson is making this great effort to make these as universal as possible. Okay? So Thomas Jefferson is striving to say, this is just reason. And that's where you see Thomas Paine really talking about a lot of this as well. And what's, what's kind of impressive is you see the, like, the French Revolution kind of happening in the world during this time. And um, the French Revolution really brought up a lot about uh, just kind of reason being like the, uh, and logic kind of being like the, the pinnacle of everything, right? And so it really brought things back to that kind of fundamental logical place. Um, and, and I think in a certain sense really was kind of the foundations of a lot of the things that we see today, um, where you start to kind of have this, um, relativistic, never actually deciding on anything. Uh, I think a lot of progressivism is born out of this, uh, and, and you really start to usurp, uh, God with individual intellect and reason. Okay. Which is obviously a problem, but I do appreciate that he's still trying to remain uh, somewhat under a, a Christian formation, you know, while explaining this stuff and, and developing these thoughts. While he himself, from my understanding, was not Christian. And I think that comes out here. And so the one thing that our teacher said to us was he was explaining this. He says, uh, separate, separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God, right? So he's referring there to natural law and basically this like agnostic idea of a creator. So nature's God. What is nature? Nature is anything that man did not create. Nature's God is the creator of said nature, right? That's what you would consider to be nature's God. Um, and that's, that's awesome. We would agree with that so far. The biggest place where I have this kind of 
like this light spot of disagreement is how do you get the connection from us being created and having a creator other, to, to us having these unalienable individual rights? And so that's a place where I feel like Christianity, or not even Christianity, but uh, the people of the book, right? You could say Muslims, Jews, and Christians all believe this in the book of Genesis. The fact that God created man in his image and likeness, from my understanding, is why we have uh, inherent value, why human life is, is precious and valuable and sacred, and why we have these rights. Now, we would agree, and I think where the teacher was kind of explaining was he, he expressed the difference between man and beast, right? And he talked about these. And he said that because animals are completely slaves to their instincts, right? They just act. Animals don't consider, they don't weigh the pros and cons. They don't reflect necessarily like deeply about past memories, even though they might have memories, of course. Um, but that's kind of the main difference is he says we can reason, we can choose. And I agree with that. But I don't know how it necessarily follows from us just being able to choose that that gives us value. Now, our ability to choose and to reason and to do all these things is what we believe Scripture teaches and what Scripture means when it says we are made in the image and likeness of God. Because we have the ability to not just follow instincts, but follow our intellect, our will, right? And so that to me is where the the value, like the human life, all human life has value because of that. And because of that value, we have these rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Right. And so that's, I think is a huge, is a huge part that I do think you do need a little bit of Christianity for where I disagree with my teachers. My teacher said to us, you know, can, can uh, a Christian believe in nature and nature's God? Yes. Can a Muslim, can a Jew? Yes. Can a, agnostic yes and then he said can an atheist and his answer was yes and that's where i disagree and that's where i think the world goes off the rails not necessarily in his line of logic but i think that the world is atheist in a lot of ways nobody's truly atheist people just replace um everybody worships something right and believes in something and so you can create and make politics or government your god uh through this belief that your your rights come from your government uh, right or from the government or from the state in any way that you think of it but i think that it's really important for us to understand that you have to you like the idea of being an atheist the definition of being an atheist is that there is no creator all of this is just happenstance now he went through you know some of the uh thomas aquinas's arguments for the existence of God and Aristotle's argument, he really based on Aristotle's argument, which was before Aquinas's on the existence of God and went through a couple of them. Um, and I think it's great. I think, I think being an atheist and, and believing that all of this has happened from nothing is the, is the dumbest stance in the world. And that's why I think so very few people truly believe that most people I think are agnostic and just believe that something created this, but we don't know what that thing is. Right. Um, and so that's what, you know, Aristotle believed was kind of just like nature and, uh, the creator, the unmoved mover, right? This idea that everything like the, the laws of physics, right? 
an object in motion, stay in motion, an object rest stays at rest. Everything is in motion. So something must have put it into motion. And at some point, there has to be this unmoved mover that actually pushed everything into motion. Everything that we see in the world, right? And I would agree with that. I don't think many people believe that this absolutely just came from absolute nothing. But that is the definition of atheism. And so while I don't think many people when pressed believe that they are actually atheists, I think most would actually end up being agnostic. It, I think a lot of people in today's world would claim to be atheists. And I think that you could clarify and count people who, who claim the universe and spirituality as also being atheists because you're, you're worshiping nature, right? So nature and nature's God, if, you're, if you make nature into its own God, that, that is not the same as nature's God. That's not the same agreement, right? Where Aristotle had the unmoved mover, Thomas Aquinas believes in the creator of the universe and what we call God, right? God the Father. People who believe in the universe, that's like saying you believe in a tree or in planet Earth is, is your God and you're spiritual because you are in touch with the opportunities and things that planet Earth gives you. That's, that's atheism. That's not, that's not religion or agnosticism. Uh, that's like you're claiming a, an actual like finite object or like physical reality is God, which doesn't make any sense. And so that, can't, that doesn't work. But that's where I think a lot of people that are anti-Constitution, anti-Declaration of Independence, they're coming from that place. And so I think to assume that we can all agree on that, I think is wrong. And so that's where I start to, to kind of venture off and believe that these founding principles are for religious people. They're not for a country of atheists. It doesn't make any sense. And a country that quickly devolves into atheism is going to be super susceptible to Marxism. Because everybody needs a God. Everybody needs somebody that they can hold up, they can look to, they can count on, they can subject themselves under. We as human beings, I feel like in our nature, we know that we're not supposed to be the supreme being. And I think that Protestantism really leads into that. And you can see how that also influences a lot of this stuff. And I'm interested as a Catholic to have a lot of conversations with so many Protestants. It's filled with Protestants in my class, which is great. I love having them there and being with them. But I do think it's a very Protestant thing where you, again, raise the importance and the supremacy, the rule, um, the uh, decision-making, right, is like the, the individual is the, the key person for that. As where for us in the Catholic world, we basically live under a spiritual monarchy where we have the Pope who's headed by Christ, right? We have, we have Christ at the head represented by the Pope on earth right? And we follow what he says. We don't get to say, oh yeah, we just all interpret scripture on our own and like we decide and we can determine what's, how it's meant to be understood. We don't believe that. And so that's going to lead to some differences in the way that we view these things. But I think that that individualism leads to people eventually wanting to be like, especially once you're a Protestant and you fall away and you're like, okay, I kind of want to, you know, I have to subject myself under something. I think people really start to say, I'm going to subject myself under the government. And we kind of lose this idea of individualism. I think it doesn't stand for very long. And then you end up with what we have today, which is a lot of people who want to 
just like we give our lives, it's kind of amazing, right? Like it's you can see how through all of this, you can start to see really how religious progressivism is because all these people are like, yeah, I want to, just the same way that we say you have to give everything in your life over to Christ, they say you have to give everything in your life over to the government, right? Um, you have to give the government control of your decisions, like forcing you to get Jamba juiced or um, like forcing you to to provide services to specific people, um, forcing people to like giving, really subjugating the church under the state, not just separation of church and state. They want to see it put under the state so that you can force same-sex marriages, um, which is an oxymoron, that you can force them into Christian churches or Muslim. Um, they probably wouldn't touch the Muslims. They only attack the Christians um, for, I think we know why. But you can. You, they, want to, they want to force everything, right? They want to subject everything under the control of the government. Whereas on the other side, you have other people who believe as Thomas Paine did, as Thomas Jefferson did, that the scope of government ought to be pretty tight and ought to be pretty small. And we ought to not give them more power and control than they're due, than they're worthy of. Um, and when we do that, or they take it by force, then it's our right to fix it, basically. Right? That's what the Declaration of Independence says. And so. Um, so yeah, so that's I think just an amazing, an amazing, amazing thing. And so I love that. Um another thing that he kind of talked about, our teacher really talked about that I that I really did appreciate and really agree with, is there's also this um this belief and kind of a big difference in the in the two sides that we see in the world today. And there's obviously a lot of nuance in that. There's not just two kind of beliefs, but he talked about this these two basic views of human nature. Right. And so you have some people who either believe that A, human nature remains the same throughout time, or B, it changes and evolves over time. Right. And so as Catholics, we believe that human nature remains the same throughout time, meaning that the value of humans, the intellect for the most part, um, and, and just like our propensity, our inclination to sin has existed since the fall. Of mankind, right? But then you have people who really believe that it it changes and evolves over time. And what these people believe, these are the people who believe that we are the greatest people who have ever lived. While simultaneously believing that they live with the worst people that ever lived <laughs> in their communities, right? Uh, there's people who believe that they are the best. We're the most enlightened people that ever lived, to have ever lived. We're not just, you know, we're, we're so not bigoted that we can allow we we can allow a man who's delusional enough to think that he is a woman a place in society where he will be influential in making decisions for others to the point of making decisions for children being able to go through life altering procedures to change that um and and not only all of this but we will actually force other people to pretend along with this man that he's a woman to the point of threatening them with job security, social punishments, all types of things, if they disagree with that or refuse to do so, refuse to cooperate. And we do that not because we're also crazy, but because we're so enlightened. 
because humans evolve. We've changed over time. That's why you hear people saying all the time, oh, I'm evolving. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm open. I apologize. You heard this from white people ad nauseum in 2020. It's enough to make you throw up. Really terrible. I'm opening. I'm, I'm open. I'm listening. I'm doing all this. It's like, okay. Let's take it easy there, bucko. And, and with that uh, is multiculturalism. So this is something big that we talked about in this last class as well. This will probably be my last kind of section that I go into today. So multiculturalism uh, is defined as, you know, it is, it is in a certain sense is what the reality of the world is, right? The world has a ton of different cultures. And that's pretty awesome, I think, because, I mean, just think of it on a cuisine level, right? Like I love... Uh, Mex- we had Mexican food last night for dinner, having Italian food for dinner tonight. I could have Chinese food tomorrow. I could have Pad Thai on Sunday. I could have uh, American cuisine on Monday. I can have all these different things, right? And, and not only can I have that because of the world, I can have that because I live in America, where we have all these different things, right? Not the only country in the world that has those different things, but you get my point. Um, we have a lot of it and a lot of diversity here. And I think that's really cool. I think it's great. One thing that's really interesting is he talks about how certain people look at multiculturalism as a reality and a fact that that is the way the world is. And some people then force it even further to say that's the way the world ought to be. That we ought to have all these different cultures, right? Southern culture, Muslim culture, Asian culture, Christian culture, Hindu culture, right? And then there's different regions of the world and different religions, different things that, that make up our culture, right? Different races, ethnicities. There's all these different things that go into culture, right? And we would agree, for the most part, that American culture is a thing. And what we've come to learn, and what, what he, the way he kind of approached it, which I thought was a really interesting take, was he said that multiculturalism preaches basically subjective truth in saying that you can't ever say that one culture is better than another. And he basically went on this topic, basically, uh, in a sense of replacing the word relativism, what we would call relativism, with multiculturalism. So for those of you who don't know, relativism is basically the belief that there is no universal truth. I think he was using multiculturalism both as a term as an example of that and as a way of uh, of kind of replacing that word. So I, it was kind of confusing to me in a certain sense. And I wasn't sure how much people like kind of understood what he was saying um, with that. But basically, his ultimate question came down to, do we believe in the possibility of an objective moral truth that supersedes culture? Because somebody who is a relativist, right, can never understand the Declaration of Independence because it's it's based on these self-evident truths, right? You hear Thomas Jefferson say that we we believe these, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Right? A self-evident truth is one that proves itself to be true in the statement. And then he goes on to say that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with these inalienable rights, right? So all men are created equal, that he says that's self-evident, right? It's just obvious. It's apparent in the statement itself. The, the subject and the predicate are both true, and the predicate is proven true by the subject. That's how he described this self-evident claim. But a relativist can never believe in self-evident truth because there is no such thing as a universal truth. So this is why when you start to break down relativism, people will say oftentimes, well, the right is the source of fascism and totalitarianism, all this stuff. 
But it has to come from the left because only the left cannot believe in universal truth. The progressivists, you know, uh, progressivism, progressives cannot believe in universal truth. And so they have to, in a certain sense, um, eventually, eventually it makes way for all of these things where it's like, you see Jimmy Fallon. I saw this video three times this week for some reason. Jimmy Fallon saying that people who did not get the Jamba Juice, you come in with a heart attack, uh, don't treat them. Don't treat them. They're now lesser than because of the decision that they made. They'll treat that as though it's the same philosophical point of uh, a criminal who has, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Relinquished in a sense. Uh, kind of give you give up your rights, right? You can at a certain point give up your rights. As a criminal is a great example, right? Where you lose certain rights, you lose your liberty because of the crime you put you you committed. Um, we look at individual decisions, or you look at religious stances as as crimes, right? It's actually like breaking the law. So somebody who objected to taking the Jamba Juice because of religious or moral principles is now in his mind able to not be served at a hospital, at least not in front of somebody who did take the Jamba Juice. Um, one thing that uh, Dave Rubin pointed out was that he he uses an example of um, somebody who comes in that had taken the juice that had a heart attack and somebody who didn't take the juice having like uh, coming in with the with the virus or something like that. And Dave was like, it's kind of funny that he said somebody who took the juice would have a heart attack because that's exactly what's been happening with all these cardiac issues. But you can see that there, right? You can start to see how somebody like a Hitler, somebody like a, a, a Mao, or um, even Xi Jinping and the CCP in China now, like the Uyghur Muslims and the things that they're being put through, like when you don't have this universal truth that all men are created equal, then or all human life has value, which relativists don't believe. If you don't believe in man and woman, if you don't believe in biological sex and reality, right? If you don't believe that babies are human beings, what do you believe? You believe in tolerance to the point of people agreeing with you. You believe in love and empathy for those who agree with you. Um, and you believe in just supporting anybody and anything, no matter how deranged it might be. But that allows you, that, from, that is the, the fountain from which and the source from which all of this kind of like horrible treatment of other people, including slavery, flows, right? Because it violates this. And one thing I thought was really beautiful, he talked about slavery. Um, and like I said, I'm gonna do a whole episode on that. But when he was going into slavery, he was like, the reason why we know slavery was bad was because of the Declaration of Independence. It's because of the self-evident truth that all men are created equal. That is the reason why we know slavery to be bad. That's why we know it to be immoral. Right, And so if you don't believe in the possibility of an objective moral truth that could supersede culture, then you're a relativist. And that's what gets us into this radical form of multiculturalism where it's like, you can't say anything bad. This is where you see even Sam Harris, the atheist, getting in an argument with Ben Affleck on the Bill Maher show about Muslims. And he's like, we have to be careful because certain Muslims can't do certain things. And it's like, that's just their culture, right? You see uh, the satanic temple uh, suing over the overturning of Roe v. Wade because to them, abortion is a, is a sacrament. It is a religious ritual and you're violating their religious norms. If we don't have any objective moral truth that can supersede cultures, then what do we have? 
And what's funny about that is these same people who don't believe in objective moral truth will try to force this on you. And they're forcing it on us by way of same-sex marriages is a great example of this, where it's like, no, we don't believe in objective moral truth, but this we do believe is objectively morally true, that that people of the same sex should be able to get married and you should be able to force or or, or punish at least churches who don't cooperate with that, right? You don't get your, uh, what was it that Beto, was it because of the same sex, I think? I just watched a video on it, that Beto O'Rourke was talking about removing the nonprofit status of churches and things like that because if they don't support uh, this radical agenda. And I mean, that's powerful stuff. But you see that ultimately they do believe in these things. But going back to kind of what we started with, right? I think it's important for us to realize, again, none of this existed, right? You had all these different places where you had serfs, you had slaves, you had um, people, you know, just committing warfare on one another uh, constantly, right? The world's been in war all the time. Um, there's no diversity. Any diversity always meant that there were second-class citizens in the vast majority of countries. There were certain countries and, and empires where that was a, an exception, but um, for the most part, I mean, people who were a different skin color than you, people who looked different than you were second-class citizens, right? Often enslaved. And so here then, these guys come along, and when you start to realize the real like philosophical arguments that Thomas Paine puts forth, you start to understand why he felt so obliged to do this and how he motivated the Thomas Jeffersons, George Washingtons, Ben Franklins of the world to actually commit their lives to this. And these young men, they looked out at the opportunity before them and they sought to make a place that could be what America is today. And it's just, it's just mind-blowing to me that we've created the middle class out of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and creating a system and a social structure of capitalism, that we have this flourishing society that is that has, as Dinesh D'Souza said to start us off, fat, poor people. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible to really like take that in and just think about our ability to be a part of that, right? And I think what our, our obligation is today as Americans is to think to ourselves, do I believe that the Declaration of Independence is true? If you haven't read it in a while, I encourage you to read it. Obviously, I read a little bit of it today. But it's worth thinking about. And one thing he encouraged us to do in this little copy of it that they gave us was to sign our name along the names of the other men who had signed this. Do we believe that the Declaration of Independence is true? Namely, do you believe that all men are created equal, that they have unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that they create, as Thomas Paine said, you, see, you hear that again in the Declaration of Independence, that because of these rights, men create a government. To, to quote him specifically, he says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. From the consent of the governed. And so this is what we need to understand. And this is why this is so important kind of going into election season. Is we have to start to realize as we watch these debates and you hear these politicians. That pretty much both sides don't actually practice this stuff. 
it's really hard to find constitutional government leaders or politicians in today's world on the right or the left. What we would say at best is that there's one side that's pretty, pretty ardently opposed to the Constitution Declaration of Independence. And then I would say that on the right, you have a side that is indifferent towards it. And one way that you can kind of see this is he kind of started us off with talking about the New Deal very, very briefly. So FDR's New Deal in, I think it was 1936, 1932, uh, FDR was elected. He said that if you take any metric from 1932 to 2022 and you graft it from government spending, number of government workers, or even percentage of the population that was government workers to kind of keep up, obviously, with population growth, um, any, any uh, you know, uh, measurable government statistic, taxation, all these different things, it's only skyrocketed, right? You know exactly how that, that chart would look from 1932 to 2022. Nothing has dipped down. It doesn't take big dips down during Republican presidencies, administrations. It doesn't take big dips down when Republicans are in the House or when Republicans control the Senate. Um, it pretty much never happens, Right. And he believes, and I believe with him, that it is a sign and symptom of cultural problems that that is the case. And our cultural problems come from our understanding of government. And FDR's New Deal is seen as the start of this new shift in this new period of government. Because that is when people start to look at government as a provider of our entitlements. Right, So we stopped thinking of government as a place to guard and protect our rights and started thinking of it as the source of entitlements, as the source of benefits. And you can see this. You go on Twitter. After you start to understand these things, go on Twitter or go on Instagram and look at comment sections or listen to debates. And people will say, oh, we're going to lose our Social Security. Or, and you can, I mean, you often hear this stuff from people on the left. right? They're going to take away our basic human rights to... Uh, Abortion. They're going to take away uh, our human rights to, um, or our human rights to to be in this country, right? Legal immigration. It's just like let it ride, man. Just uh, no borders whatsoever. They're going to take. They 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 are are taking away our rights to um, secondary education, right? Everybody has a right to college and free college. So they have this entitlement and they have this anger about their college loans not being paid off. And we just keep expanding, right? The circle of rights. And this is where you know somebody is a relativist, right? When the, when the uh, basic human rights is just start to continue to expand versus where you would say in, in the Catholic Church that has been pro-life for 2,000 years that we have always been implicitly pro-life, but we had never had to be explicitly pro-life until abortion existed, right? And, and then what do we go back to? You go back to the same fundamental principles, values, and philosophies that govern everything, right? And the same religious principles and doctrines that guide everything we believe. And the things that we believe outside of that are consistent with those other beliefs. As we're on the other side, you have, if you've ever listened to my conversation with a ex-Catholic socialist, which I recorded about a month ago, um, I, where I go deep into this cognitive dissonance, right? There's constantly this cognitive dissonance that allows you to believe two contrary things are true at the same time. Right or to support two causes that are that are opposing each other, and it's it's quite amazing. And in the pursuit of protecting all these made up human rights, they're actually willing to take the rights away from other people. And so you see this, I think, very commonly with the transgender movement of 
And we're going to see it, you know, in the years to come where there's going to be this push to actually take kids from their parents and get child protective services involved if the parents don't go along with regendering them, renaming them, um, dressing them up in the, the opposite gender or in whatever in between they claim to be. And who knows where that will stop? Because this is, I was just listening to Ben Shapiro talk about it today of there's a, a fallacy called the slippery slope fallacy, which uh, conservatives, people on the right are often accused of committing or holding. But it's kind of like this idea of like conspiracy theories, right? Where it's like you're a conspiracy theorist for a few years and then it comes true. And we see that now more than ever. I think gay marriage is a great example of it where the the left does a great job of preying on the openness, the politeness of people on the right. And there's too many nice Republicans who and conservatives who are church-going people and they allow people to just kind of like force their way on them and they just say, okay, you know, sure, we'll give them civil unions, but they're never going to push. He used this example. He said, sure, we'll give them civil unions, but they're never going to push for gay marriage. Sure, we'll give them gay marriage, but they're never going to push for, for gay adoption. Sure, we'll give them gay adoption, but they're never going to force uh, gay marriage upon Christians, right? And then they start to do that. And then it's like, it continues to flow, right? And then it's like, but but surely they're not going to, uh, transgenderism is going to be on here, but they're not going to force uh, taxpayers to pay for it. Then they do that. Well, they're not going to force transgenderism upon children, right? Or um, allow kids to transition. And then they start to do that. Well, they're not going to then start to brainwash them and have them, uh, you know, really confused about their gender and educating them in preschools and uh, grade schools about transgender ideology. And, and then they start to do that then it's like, well, surely they're not going to like start to push pedophilia. And then you see all these different videos of professors and teachers saying that we should call pedophiles minor attractive persons to be more kind to them because pedophile is a, a derogatory term. And this goes on and on. You have things like furries in schools. I know, that, I know this is true because I know in schools in, in Colorado that have these teenagers who dress as animals and meow and bark at people in the hallway and act like they're animals. And so how far are we away from parents now now in california again in california you have bills being passed that allow kids to transition and be called different names and and dress differently at schools without the parents permission and i think they even passed something where like 16 and up you can start to take puberty blockers and suppressants and uh testosterone or um you know other hormone drugs estrogen for uh for minors 16 and up maybe 14 and up without your parental consent. So how, how long are we until somebody's kid claims they're a cat and the parent won't go along with it and they get taken from their parents? How far are we from these things? This happens, and, and there, if you've ever seen What is a Woman by Matt Walsh, if you haven't, you should. Uh, he, he interviews, phones interviews a, a father in Canada that lost um, custody rights of his son, I think, because the mom convinced the son to transition into a girl and the dad was trying to prevent it from happening or vice versa. I can't remember which way it was going, but that's like, this is, this stuff is happening and it happens in all these fringe places, right? Just like critical race theory and all this stuff. And then it starts to get more mainstream. And again, I hope if nothing else, this brings you back to understanding the fundamental questions and where we disagree. And this is where we used to have American culture because at least back in the day, Conservatives and liberals did love the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. But then you have people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ibram X. Kendi, um, all these trans activists, right? All these different people who say 
sexism and racism are baked into the foundations, the constitution of the United States, that's where you have some serious problems. And that's where we start to, to ver- diverge, where we say, okay, half of us agree with the, the constitution and declaration, half of us don't. And it's not even 50-50, it's more like 80-20, but that number is ever increasing. And we have to know this stuff because just like you have to teach the faith to your kids, we, we owe it to them and we ought to teach them as American parents the truths of the founding of our country. I can't wait to teach this stuff to my kids. I'm so excited. So I'm diving all into all these textbooks and books again. And so I hope that this will at least spark in you the curiosity to learn more. I hope that you'll follow me along on this journey as I go you know, about this. Next episode I'll do will probably be half on slavery, half on economics. And we'll take a look at some of those things. Um, and then I will be doing in the coming weeks also an episode on the uh, divorce stuff because that was really powerful as well. So, all right. Well, thank you guys so much. It was great getting to talk with you. I hope you have a blessed week and continue to fight hard to be your best. I hope that you strive to be a great Catholic American, be Catholic first in everything that you do. Never let politics or, um, yeah, American ideology to override anything you believe about the church. The most important thing you can do, the best thing you can do for your country is to be a saint. We need more American saints and America does overflow and you can see in both good ways and bad over American history, how our ideas and our philosophies and our systems have overflowed into other countries. And so let's make Catholicism the country of America by being such great saints that people can't help but wonder about the hope that we have inside of us and the joy that we live by every single day. And so go out there, be a saint. God bless America and God bless you. All right, see ya.